0: In a stadium rich with tradition, the lights shine the brightest. This is the camp. Now, here's your host, Zach Heilprin, on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Yes, welcome into the camp. Well, the Badgers take care of Iowa 27-7. They've beaten ranked teams in back-to-back weeks for the first time since 2017. And more importantly, it's put them certainly right in the mix in the Big Ten West race. They are three and two in conference play. They're a game back in Minnesota, tied with Iowa, but they obviously own the tiebreaker on Iowa and Purdue, and we'll get Minnesota later this year. Probably a different a number of different places we could start, Jesse, but I, I think the defense is probably uh, the best place to start because they were dominating once again. They, I, I guess I, I've kind of run out of things to say about them, where they rank right now in the country is really remarkable. I mean, they're they're the top defense in the country in total defense. They're allowing 214.6 yards per game. The rushing defense tops in the country, 49.6 yards per game. Passing defense is, is a fifth, allowing 165 yards a game. Their scoring is ranked eighth you know, at 17 points a game. But if you take away the five turnovers and special teams uh, touchdowns that the offense and special teams allow, they're averaging, giving up 12.6 points per game. That would rank second in the country. And the third down defense, 25.5% second in the country. Those are numbers, and I get that they are not playing necessarily the best offenses this country has to offer, but what they've done to teams, especially these last two weeks, has been uh, extremely impressive.
1: Well, you could say that about a lot of seasons in in the Big Ten, that this is the type of football that is played, but this Wisconsin defense has risen to the challenge in ways that we rarely see. Um, And it's saying an awful lot that we're talking about them being it's not just in the conversation. It's are they the best defense we've ever seen? Um, It's not hyperbole right now because they go out and they do it every week. And you're right. Iowa's offense had been struggling, but they made Iowa look like an FCS team (laughs) offensively. You go into halftime and you're up 20 to nothing and you've held Iowa to 17 yards of total offense. And you've got three takeaways as a team, two of them defensively. It's just, it was outstanding. Iowa couldn't do anything. I think the Hawkeyes finished with 24 yards rushing. Their quarterbacks in total completed less than 50% of their passes. So once Wisconsin got a double-digit lead in this game, that was all she wrote. They've been phenomenal, and it's come from everywhere. The defensive line, which, as always, doesn't get a ton of the credit because they don't rack up the stats necessarily, but they're, they're stuffing holes. We've, we talk every week about why do even teams bother running it up the middle? They've got to come up with something else. But the linebackers are making plays. Nick Herbert comes up with a huge strip sack that Keanu Benton falls on. Noah Burks recovers a fumble. And the secondary played well, too. So it's been phenomenal. They're a, obviously a huge reason why Wisconsin has gotten to this point. And I'm certainly eager to see how they can close out this regular season, if they can keep on this historic pace. Because right now, They're on pace to finish with the best run defense in the history of this program, which is absolutely ridiculous when you consider um, how far back these stats go.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it's insane. The the best part or the uh, little comical part of it was, you know, after the strip sack of uh, Spencer Peters by Nick Herbig, Wisconsin doesn't score there. They get stuffed on fourth down. Right. So what does the defense do? Turns around, gets a turnover like two plays later. And obviously, I don't know. They didn't have a ton to do with that one. Um, It was essentially uh, Kelly Martin just dropping the ball and he did not get another carry, but Nick Herbert was right there. I should say uh, Noah Burks right there to fall on it. And Wisconsin puts it in the end zone the next time. So like, yeah, okay. uh, Offense didn't do it. All right, we'll do it again. And that's kind of that. Do it again, do it again, do it again. They were talking about it after the game, grit factory, like all these different things, all these different sayings that Colin Wilder has a hand in pretty much all of them, but you know, in, in listening to them, talk about do it again, I don't know, it's kind of corny, and yet it seems to have caught on. The thing is, in sports, sometimes
1: that's what you need. And it may seem corny, but if it's a rallying cry, and if your teammates get on board and it creates some momentum, then it becomes a real thing. And it, it doesn't even matter how corny it is. And I, I'm sure we'll get into the grit factory story because it's it was part of that game. But the whole do it again thing, I, I mentioned that in my story off the game, wh- where that it came from and how did it, grow into this thing because it's not the first time we've heard players say it. They said it a ton after the Purdue game too, that Jim Leonard was saying it during fall camp when his defensive backs would have had a good day in practice. That's, that's awesome. That's great. You went out there and performed well, do it again and then do it again. And, and apparently safety, John Torchio kind of picked up the mantle with that and and kept using that phrase. And then obviously Colin Wilder got his hand in there, which, you know, I, I, I think, this is my 11th season covering the team and he may go down as my favorite player that I've covered (laughs) just because of what a quote, what a quote machine he is, um, how he's got a hand in all of this stuff at the forefront of the whole grit factory thing. Just he's a gold mine. If you, when you talk to him after games, he's the guy you want to go to. But Colin said that he gave a talk to the team in the week leading up to the Purdue game. And that was what he wanted to, the big point he wanted to make was that whole do it again thing. And so it it transformed from just the defensive back saying it to then it was the entire team. And that's what they're going with. Like, yeah, they've they've won four straight games. They've beaten two straight ranked teams. That's great. Do it again. And they've they're gonna have to four more times if they want to win the Big Ten West.
0: Yeah, the grit factory thing. Let's let's get into that story because I think obviously anybody that watched the game saw the hat. It ended up on the heads of Nick Herbig, Trevion Blaylock, Noah Burks. All the guys that had hands in in the turnover, the three turnovers that Wisconsin forced. What is behind that? Okay, so I, I
1: just as we started talking here, I, I finished a story on this. It's going to run on Monday, so hopefully, if you're listening, you check it out. If you, you haven't uh, read a little about it already, but uh, it's, I think the whole thing is hilarious. So um, the the term the grit factory started with this team about six months ago, according to, to Scott Nelson, who's Colin's roommate. They would use it in group chats. And then in August, Colin started a Twitter account. I had no idea about this, by the way. I looked it up. It's it's as awesome as I hoped it would be. The Grit Factory Twitter account he started in August. And it's basically, the idea was to highlight grittiness in everyday life and in sports. And if, if you go through and look at it, some of them are like a, a Cincinnati hand surgeon who successfully operated on his own hand or an Italian track athlete who shaved seven tenths of a second off his hundred meter dash time over the course of seven years, (laughs) or like uh, the last pick in the NFL draft, making the 53 man roster out of preseason practice this year. And what's a, what's a grit factory without a video of of Jack Cohn dislocating his finger for Notre Dame and then coming in, getting it popped in and throwing the game winning touchdown. Like that's on there too. I know Colin and, and Jack are friends. So apparently this had been going on for a little bit, and on Friday, Colin was looking for Halloween costumes. So he we went with Mike Gregory who's a wide receiver on the team. They went to Ragstock, and they were going to be mechanics. They found this, these outfits that, so they could be mechanics. And, uh, Colin decided that he wanted to be a factory worker. And like, obviously the most, uh, the, the thing that makes the most sense if you're going to be a factory worker is you have to work in the grit factory. So he, uh, he got a hat. It's a trucker hat, a red and white trucker hat. I'm sure everyone listening has seen it by now, but he went home and he and, and Scott were trying to map out, like, how do we write this? You only get one chance. Cause it's a, a Sharpie. So he wrote the grit factory on it and then he wore it to the locker room on Friday and guys liked it. And he got on the team bus wearing the hat and he, he there was Paul Christ and he's, st- Stop there. And because he knew that it wasn't a team issue to tire and asked if it was okay. And he said that Paul loved it. And he, Colin said that Paul gave him some knucks, like knuckles. I thought was kind of a funny way to describe it. And, and it took off from there. And then with Scott and, and Nick Herbig kind of idea of, okay, what if we brought it out on a sideline so that we can celebrate during the game? And Colin said that a, a strength staff member brought it out sort of discreetly so that it wasn't a big focus. But then when there was a turnover that Nick got Colin was the first one running over there to make sure that he was able to put it on. And it became this thing. It was on TV. They were celebrating after the game, taking turns wearing it. Nick put the the hat on the brass bowl when the team brought the Heartland trophy in. And, and that's kind of what it's become. And now the grit factory is a thing. I think, and we're going to see it probably next week against Rutgers. The, the only downside is that Colin said that he can't wear the hat anymore. He was going to wear it for his Halloween outfit, but, there was no way he could go out and wear it because, I mean, who knows what could happen. It might get stolen. He had to keep it in the locker room so that they could keep it for the week. But that's kind of the story of the grit factory. And it's really no surprise that Colin has his hand in something like this because that's just who he is. If you remember last year, he brought that whole bring your own juice thing with the the guys who had to go play in front of no fans during the pandemic. And that became kind of a rallying cry. So kudos to Colin Wilder. And uh, I think a pretty quality Halloween outfit. My favorite uh is probably tanner mcavoy as an aside when he came out dressed as ricky bobby yeah that that was awesome one one year the players came out just wearing their halloween costumes we we didn't really see that this year but uh this one's gonna go down probably up there
0: yeah i remember vince beagle uh was dressed as like a i think he was top gun i think that was uh his that year but yeah no it's it's an interesting certainly uh Interesting turnover prop. Uh, Paul, Christ, a huge lover of turnover props, if we all remember. Um, <laughs> yes. Right? Turnover uh, chain,
1: my bleeping bleep. Yeah. I love uh, that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, I do not like he was asked about it after the game. He's like, I do now. Obviously, we, we learned afterwards that he knew of it. I shouldn't say he even knew of it. He knew of the he knew of the hat, but I don't think he knew that it was on the sideline until probably right after the game or when he was asked about it. But yeah. So the grit factory and they've showed grit all year and they showed it again yesterday. And that includes Jack Sanborn who, you know, I think it was it wasn't the third quarter, third quarter, got hurt, stayed in for a series and then came out. And all of a sudden he's in the tent and we're all like, well, what's going on? And he ends up going back into the locker room. And we all think he's done. Like, I mean, when you go in the locker room, usually you're not coming back out. We've seen Jake Ferguson. We've seen Graham Mertz. They're not coming back out and playing after getting hurt. And, uh, he did return and learned afterwards that he somehow dislocated one of his fingers to the point that the skin broke. There's like, uh, I guess th- there's something called an open dislocation and, uh, the skin broke and he had to go in there and get stitches, but he's like, oh, he came out the field and, and apparently the trainers were just freaking out. Like he's done. He's done. He's, he's, he's done. He's not playing. And he's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. But they made him go back in get the stitches. Came comes back and and I think the first play he was back in had a TFL. So speaking of grit, it starts with Jack Sanborn. He said uh, the reason he came back or the reason, you know, why he wanted to keep playing one. I mean, it's just that's who he is as a football player. But it's also Iowa week. and He just has to do it. He
1: is certainly first team all grit. Uh <laughs> John Chanel also at least honorable mention, maybe making his way toward first team because he was questionable with what. Uh, Wisconsin termed a left arm injury, and John said after the game that it was a stinger. He um, yeah, he'd been, de- yeah, and so uh, I'm sure we'll get into this too because a lot's happened since the last time we spoke, but there really weren't any fullbacks left after John, so I don't know. I mean, they obviously have plans and packages that they can use, but we're gonna ride John an awful lot this season, so he came back into the game and, and did his thing. There's, there's no more Quan Easterling, and that was the only scholarship back on the roster, although they've, they've had some other options. I I'm reminded though of, you know, when Jack's talking about it's Iowa week. Um, I remember talking to Chris Borland several years ago, obviously about the, the Minnesota rivalry and some of the things that the staff would do when they would talk to the players. And he said, there was a story going around uh, that the coaches had talked to them about from many moons ago, probably close to a century ago. Now that there was a football player for Wisconsin, and he got hurt in a game and he had to get his finger amputated and he came back. And I, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what Chris told to me. And they asked why he came back and he said, better to lose a finger than a fumble to Minnesota. So <laughs> an all time great uh, story. That's what that yeah. reminds me of.
0: It was a yeah, I mean, it was a it was a really, really good game. A couple of more notes in terms of attire after the games. We, we saw John Schnell with his make fullbacks great again hat, which um, certainly wisconsin tries to make the fullback great every single week and then also uh, danny davis had a ridiculously awesome 1990s uh pro player wisconsin jacket it was it took me back to my childhood Uh, his his girlfriend apparently went goes thrift shopping and she gets like all this stuff and he's he loves it he goes i'm i wear it all the time i don't care it's the warmest thing i've ever worn in my life and um it is it looked really good
1: It was really, really good. I love it. I'm glad you got that story from him because I I didn't know what it was. I thought like, man, is that a starter jacket? That is straight fire. And I didn't ask him about it because we're talking like 15 guys, but pro player, that is a, that is a big time throwback. So yeah, they brought the heat post game.
0: They did. That was, it's an awesome, awesome jacket. And it followed what was a very uh, productive day for him. He was targeted five times, five catches, 59 yards. Graham Mertz was looking his way early and often, it worked really, really well, and, and and Mertz started very good. Right, he started nine for ten, and included a five for five drive for fifty-two yards, I believe, and a four-yard touchdown to Jake Ferguson on what was a a really nice drive. I mean, he he hit five different guys on that drive to be able to uh, to get them in position to score. It was the best I think it was the best he's looked in quite some time on that drive. Now. He only would hit two more passes after that. Finished eleven for twenty-two, so that's not ideal. But the way that they started this game, and the way that they started last week against Purdue too, he started five for five. He's at least getting off to better starts than we've seen. Yeah, I've
1: got the live stats pulled up that we use during games, and it's Danny caught five passes, but he was actually targeted ten times. Oh, I'm which sorry. Is,
0: I'm i i saw i saw the dr at the end. Like you know, what I'm looking at like drops. drops. They're saying he dropped the ball five times.
1: Uh, I don't know if all those were fully catchable, but
0: either way, it looks like it looks like they consider a drop. Anytime you don't catch a target. Maybe it's just how they,
1: their statistics take things into account, but either way, Graham threw him the ball 10 times, which is, I mean, (laughs) considering how few opportunities he's gotten in the last handful of games, uh, he must have felt like a kid in the candy store because he didn't catch any passes against Purdue, didn't even get a target. He had gotten three total targets in games against, uh, was it Illinois and, and Army, and didn't catch any passes in those games. So this showed what a big impact he can make. And, and Paul Chris said after the game that he knew in a matchup like this, they needed to do something a little different on offense. And obviously that meant, trying to get the ball out quick and, and pass because eight of Wisconsin's first 17 plays in the Iowa game were passes. Well, they threw the ball of eight times the entire game against Purdue, and they could certainly get away with that because they ran the ball so effectively, and, and it was going to be more challenging against Iowa. But I thought this was an important step in the right direction for the offense. Certainly, it wasn't pretty especially with the final numbers, Graham completes only 50% of his passes, 11 for 22 for 104 yards. And in the grand scheme, you look at the final box score and it's like, ah, this isn't that much different from what he's been doing, but you're right. thought he played very well early and could have thrown a second touchdown pass. I would stop Jake Ferguson of the goal line. Um, but this is what they're going to need to do. If they want to make a move here down the stretch.
0: Best quarterback sneak quarterback in Wisconsin history. Is
1: he the best quarterback sneaker? Yeah. Well, he's a big dude. He got two of them against Iowa.
0: How many does he have this year? He's got. Uh, well, he's got four now. Um, he had two against Army and two against Iowa. Did he have one against Purdue? I'm trying to think. No, he should have had one against Purdue, but they they didn't run. They didn't run the quarterback sneak or the fullback dive at any point in that series that they ended up getting stopped at uh, inside the five. They also didn't. Uh, did they run it? I don't think they ran it when. Uh, when they got stuffed this time either. Like, you could have gone there on fourth down instead of giving it to mm-hmm. Chanel. The, the fullback dive, though, like I have no problem with play call. The fullback, fullback dive has worked all the time, unless you're Iowa. The fullback dive always, almost always works. I think Chanel probably should just not have jumped. And yeah. he, would have been, he would have been better off. Easy, but, easy for me to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, th- yeah, I mean, he's, he's good on the quarterback sneaks. They can get enough push there, and uh, I, I'm surprised that... They, I'm surprised when they don't run that down there near the goal line. And he yeah, did, that's and they fair. did and they did it twice. I mean, like like the uh, the first time he got stopped, I think uh, on the first one, and then came back with another one and and got it in. So like they, I, he's good at the quarterback snakes. I think that's I think we uh, we can say that without any hesitation. He's good at quarterback snakes, and again, if he can just be a little bit more consistent and I'm not, you know, you're not expecting nine of 10, the entire game, but you can't be going from nine, eight, nine of 10 to what was it? Two for 12, the rest of the way that's, that can't happen. I mean,
1: fortunately from Wisconsin's perspective, built a big enough lead, the best defense in the country. Maybe some Georgia fans would disagree. Uh, that didn't really matter, but I, so You can view that game however you want to. I think looking at it through the prism of what he did in the first half shows you that that's encouraging and that this offense can, if they can just do that a little bit each game with this good of a defense and Braylon Allen doing what he's been doing, then they can make some noise here.
0: Well, that's that's what was next thing I was going to talk about. Braylon Allen, another 100 yard game, goes for 104 on 20 carries, also had. A 28 yard, uh, had a long of 28. So it's not like he was, he got it all done in one, in one shot, but it was 5.2 yards carry. Uh, the only thing that stopped him was a net, a kicky net on the sideline. That's the only thing that really slowed him down, at least on that particular play. He continues to be impressive. And for the first time ever, got, I know, I know it's 20 to 19, but for the first time ever, got more carries than Ches Malusi.
1: Yeah. And I don't, Think late or third quarter. I wondered whether that was going to be the case because he went a while without getting any carries. Right? Yes, if he I'm did. Not mistaken. Yes, he did. Uh, I mean, it's been basically even for a while now. Like, but the more he plays like this, the harder it is to say he shouldn't get more carries. He's just been awesome these these last four games. I mean, the offensive line's blocking better, but you can see the power and the speed that he has, and that combination and the only thing holding him back is is fumbling, but we saw Jonathan Taylor have those issues early in his career, and it's just something that you got to get used to, especially at this level with the way that people are going to try to tackle you. Not, not high school football like it was for him last year, but just he's been exceptional in these four games when he's become a, a regular part of the rotation as the number two guy.
0: Yeah, he's been great. He's averaging 100, it was 120 yards, I think, uh, over the last four games. has been really, really good. All right. So before we get into, uh, over after no, wanted to hit on a, a topic that we kind of talked about at the beginning of last week with the, with the transfers, but you had an opportunity to chat with Quan Easterling, uh, who may have gotten some playing time yesterday. If he had stuck around John Chanel out cam large out Marty stray out all at one point, obviously Chanel was able to return. Uh, but you had an opportunity to chat with him, but I think, and then, uh, guys were asked about it after the game as well, but that, the um, just this whole topic, I like. I I think that there were largely like John Chanel kind of talked about, and he said, "I don't know what Quan was going through," right. And I, you know, I wish I would have known more. I could have talked like that type of thing. Other guys took a different approach to it, including Colin Wild.
1: Uh, he certainly did. Uh, so I suppose I'll start by saying that I had an opportunity to talk to Quan on Friday, which was the day after he entered the transfer portal, and. Uh, I love it when we can get sort of uh, an unvarnished look at what's going on. Once they're out of there, they sort of just say what they want, but really it's learning about what basically what the hell happened. And he said that obviously he didn't get a lot of opportunities in his career to this point, but when Gary Brown came in and then fall camp started, he said that Gary told him that he had progressed quite a bit since spring practice when they didn't have any running backs, So he was basically playing a different position and he thought he was going to contribute. Like Quan felt like he was going to be, he knew he wasn't going to be a starter because John Chanel was the guy, but then he suffered a, a hamstring injury and, and Wisconsin went with Cam large in a fullback situation. I can understand why Wisconsin had to put somebody else in there. It makes a bunch of sense. And I can also understand why Quan was like, oh, what's going on. But then he said, the last straw was on Monday. Uh, he said, Marty Stry was playing, Fullback, and he was, you know, Marty's obviously a walk-on outside linebacker, and Quan, who's was healthy, was basically like, "I this makes no sense," and he told coaches that he was going to enter the transfer portal, and he ultimately did on Thursday. And his biggest complaint, which um, is not the first guy who said it, but that there didn't seem to be communication in terms of what was really going on. That that was his perspective. That was what Devin Chandler said. That they were just told, you know, keep keep doing what you're doing and, and things will happen. And he said that, and I don't know if this is true, but again, these exit interviews that I do they're from the perspective of the player that he asked Gary Brown, like what's going on with the cam large situation or the Marty situation. And, and he said that Gary told him that he didn't know, but that he would find out. And so I said, well, does that mean that it went over his head? And if so, is that coming from the head coach? And he said that, yes. So I, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there in terms of communication, but either way, Quan is gone. Dante Burton also entered the transfer portal on Thursday. And that came after Caden Lyles entered the portal earlier in the week. So now we are at four guys from Wisconsin that have entered the portal in the last two weeks. And that brings us to your question about Colin Wilder and, and what guys were saying. And Colin, again, a gold mine and a quote machine was asked about this a few times. And I had a chance to, to ask him about it uh, at the end of his interview session saying that, like, what are your thoughts? There's been four guys that have left in two weeks. As a player on the team, what's it like seeing your teammates leave at midseason? And he said that it's a selfish decision that affects the rest of the team. He said it, it It doesn't just affect the guys that are leaving. It's It's the whole team. And he said, I don't support it at all. I don't support leaving in the middle of the season. And he said, if they want to wait until after the season to leave, I respect it. Good luck to them. He said, I'm a transfer. As we all know, he came in from Houston. But he said that, the other thing is, if you leave in the middle of the season, and this was his perspective, you run the risk of burning bridges. Like as a transfer, you don't want to burn a bridge and at the school you left before because the next school is going to call and say, what happened? Why did they leave? And if it wasn't on good terms, uh, things may not work out in your favor. So he said, if if you leave and, and you weren't committed, what next school is going to want that? Now, Colin also was asked this question earlier in his interview session and basically said like, good riddance see you. If you, if you don't want to be a part of the program, get out. Um, Not everybody was as uh, forceful or as, as Colin was in his comments. Other guys were just like, you know, I wish them luck, but I can understand if you're a player on this team and you're putting in all the blood here since winter conditioning and you've got guys that are just opting out halfway through the season, why it would be upsetting. On the other hand, if you're unhappy and it can affect the team negatively and you want to get out and find a spot, then that's what the transfer portal is for. So it's an interesting conversation. It's one that's going to be ongoing. It's not just Wisconsin that's been affected. And this is the way of college football. We're going to see a whole lot more moving forward. And this isn't the last player. I'm not even going out on a limb here. Um, Not that I know who it is, but this certainly isn't the last player that we're going to see from Wisconsin's team this season that winds up entering the transfer portal. That's just the way it is.
0: Yeah, definitely won't be. All right, let's get into some overreaction or no. Uh, The only thing keeping Braille and Allen from being a star is wasting carries on Chez Malusi. Is that an overreaction <laughs> Overreaction or no? Um, that, that's
1: an overreaction. It's not like <laughs> Chez is going out. And obviously the Iowa game wasn't his finest performance. He carried 19 times for 48 yards. He didn't have a run of longer than five yards. He averaged two and a half yards per carry. I would just direct you to the run he made against Purdue when the dude got into the backfield and should have stopped him for a four-yard loss. And he got away and ran for a twenty-yard touchdown. He's been very good for them, um, especially early on when they were trying to figure some things out. So, he, Braylon carried twenty times. Like, are you saying you would want him to carry thirty-five times? It Me? works for Ron Dane, I suppose. But right now, I think this is uh, this is the appropriate way to approach this right now. And I meant you, as in the person asking the question, or or or. I guess the the question in general, like I don't, I don't think you're saying that. I think you're just throwing it out there, right?
0: No, I want them. I want him to run 35 times per game at a minimum. Moving on here, uh, Isaiah Mullins. Oh, actually, be, you know, before we get into the next one, the offensive line. We're, we haven't talked about it, but mm-hmm. 22 dropbacks and no sacks and only one tackle for loss for for iowa in the game uh that may have been they, the holes may not have been the biggest that they've been you know in this in this four game stretch where they've been able to run the ball but i think that may have been among their better performances uh yeah. perhaps th- perhaps their best considering the front that they were facing and the challenge that iowa presents with the way that they play defense
1: yeah well they're certainly better in pass pro, and you saw the strategy early was for graham to get the ball out quick so i imagine that helped too but I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the offensive line this season and the problems they've had. And I wrote a story about this late last week about some of the things they've been able to do to turn things around. I thought it was really interesting. Like, I know I said before that Tyler Beach was one of the more enjoyable people to talk to like Colin Wilder, because he'll speak his mind and he'll give you gold. But he talked about how much the team or the the unit lacked confidence earlier this season. And Joe Tittman actually said the exact same thing that he, I mean, he was making his first start of his career uh, to open this season. He had barely played last year. And he said that he didn't have the confidence earlier in the year. And, and Beach said that, like, they meet every Sunday, which is standard operating procedure. And they would get a packet of information, and Joe Rudolph would hand out grades, kind of like when we talk about with pro football focus. I don't know how Rudy does the grades. I imagine it's probably something similar. So everyone's grade. And Beach said that guys were just like in their heads about these grades and they were really affecting them negatively. And then obviously they played terribly against Michigan lost 38, 17. There was a players only meeting with the entire team. And then the offensive line also met and spoke. And and from that point forward, they decided, I don't know if I can say this on a podcast, but Tyler Beach said it. So he said that people were wondering, is my grade going to be that bad? And he said, it was like, fuck the grade, just go out and play the game. And that was the idea. And for whatever reason, obviously that's not the only thing that's turned things around, but I just thought that was sort of fascinating that he would open up and acknowledge that they were just struggling so much that they were in their head about how they were being graded. Now they've been able to play consistently with one unit rather than having a rotation. And I think that's helped. And you also look at four of the five guys that opened the season as starters, two of them with Titman and uh, Jack Nelson had barely played. And when they did play last year, it wasn't at that position. And then Logan Bruss and Beach were dealing with injuries in fall camp. So I think all of this took time to come together. And it's not perfect. But the point is, they've gotten a lot better. And it's a big reason why they've won four straight games.
0: Isaiah Mullins is the most underrated player on this roster. Is that an overreaction or no?
1: I guess I would have to think about who else would be in the conversation. But since we never talk about Mullins, (laughs) I think that's a reasonable statement. He was fantastic against Iowa. Um, So I think that's a reasonable
0: statement because... Have we mentioned him once since fall camp? No, no, we haven't. And, <laughs> you know, for, for the most part, he's been out of view, right? Because like he hasn't been, there hasn't been big numbers, but had a, had a big play against Purdue, had a sack, should have been credited for a sack. Then he had one yesterday. So, I mean, I, he got credited
1: say, with half a sack. Yeah. So. so,
0: yeah. So he's like, he's been more of a factor in our, in our eyes, or like I should say uh, in our minds because some of these stats, but, I think overall for the season, he's certainly underrated.
1: Yeah, because when you talk about the defensive line, who do you bring up? It's, and you as in just people in general. I, I include myself in that Matt Henningsen and Keanu Benton. Um, but Isaiah Mullins has quietly taken on one of those roles as well and become uh, an important factor in, in stopping things. Again, it goes back to the line, doesn't necessarily get a ton of the credit because they're not making all the plays, but they've started to make more plays. And Mullins is certainly in that category. So, it's taken him a while, too, to uh, to get to this point, you know, but there were seniors ahead of him for so long or, or veteran players.
0: Yeah, I, I remember talking to the, the former D-line coach like when he was a freshman and he was like, he's coming along, he's coming along, he's coming along um, in Okie Brechterfield. And like there was a hope that he might even be able to play early, and it just didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Mainly, as you mentioned, he had older guys in, ahead of him, but he certainly played, a, I think, a vital role this year. And uh, the defensive line in general continues to be uh, an underrated group that does a whole bunch of stuff that none of us talk about, but they are the key to that run defense because it allows Leo Chanel and Jack Sanborn to, to make the plays that they can, I think. Yeah. Well, one
1: other thing I want to mention about Mullins, too, is like, the physical. This happens a lot with big guys out of high school that come to college, but it requires a massive physical transformation that just because you're big doesn't mean you can succeed in college. I remember talking to him for a story a couple of years ago. He said he came to summer workouts when he was a freshman. He weighed 297 pounds and he couldn't even make it through the very first summer workout because he just wasn't conditioned well, wasn't eating the way he needed to. So he changed his diet and he dropped down to 260 pounds. So he lost almost 40 pounds so that he could then build back up in what Wisconsin or any college program would call good weight. Um, and that kind of thing requires a long, long time to get to the point that he's at. So I just thought that was worth mentioning.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, for sure. Well, a couple more here. over or no. If Wisconsin played like this, they'd have beaten Penn State, Michigan, and Notre Dame. Is that an overreaction or no?
1: Well, I suppose I would ask, what does like this mean for the offense? Because I think the defense played pretty well in a lot of those matchups. And so I guess the question would be, if they didn't turn the ball over,
0: well, hell yeah, they'd be undefeated. Okay. (laughs) Right? So (laughs) not an overreaction then?
1: No, I don't think it is. But they did. That's a big if.
0: Well, no. Like yesterday, they didn't turn the ball over for the first time in twelve games. Very helpful. Yes, <laughs> yes. So they've they they have won the turnover battle in the last two games. They're plus six over the last two games, and they've won those games by an average of eighteen and a half points. So
1: it's amazing how big of a difference
0: that makes. Shocker, shocker. Uh, and what did I mean? And what did I think yesterday come down to? It came down to turnovers and field position and. Uh, Wisconsin won both, and that doesn't usually happen against Iowa. So uh, that's the way Iowa has won all year. But that that their offense is broken, and I know that Wisconsin's defense is good, but that offense—I mean, Purdue did the exact same thing to them. And uh, you know, really since the Penn State game, that offense has been—I even say the Penn State game—pretty much the entire year they have not been very good offensively. But they've done because the defense forced so many turnovers, gave them so many short fields. It didn't matter when you don't do that. That offense. I'm not shocked at what Wisconsin defense did yesterday. Are you like, I'm not, I was not surprised that they held them the way they did. I, I firmly felt that they were not going to be able to rush the ball. I thought there might be some opportunities down the field, but it, only if they could protect them. And they didn't that offense, I, that offense is broken. And I know there's fan, uh, Iowa fans are really, 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 um, tired of Brian Ferentz as the offense coordinator, but that's just not a good offense right now. And, you know, Wisconsin's seen plenty of that this year from their own offense, but that Iowa team, I don't know what they do because they can't run the ball. They can't pass the ball. They can't do anything.
1: Well, I suppose if you're a Wisconsin fan, you should take some solace in the fact that this is <laughs> there are other programs dealing with struggles. So, you, you know, your team isn't the only one that has had issues. And certainly there's no get right game against Wisconsin's defense. So Spencer Petras completes nine of 19 passes. I suppose the good news is he didn't throw any interceptions, but obviously there were, were three turnovers. Um, only one of which Wisconsin actually forced, I think it was yep. really, they was they were self-inflicted and the kick return or the, the, uh, the punt return, I, it was. So that apparently that was a backup in the game. And yep. I think, so he called for a fair catch late Wisconsin. I can't remember who was run down on the coverage, but he got out of the way just perfectly at the right time. But in a way that also I think spooked the kick returner and that was what caused the fumble. Um So, you can't, yeah, you can't do that in a game that uh, going in, I think all of us or many of us presumed was going to be a low scoring, potentially one possession game. Those are exactly the types of mistakes that Wisconsin made early, that Iowa made on Saturday, that you can't make in a game that you you think is going to be close. And that's why it wasn't close.
0: They've switched personalities the last two weeks. Uh, Purdue, you know, against Iowa, against Purdue, and Iowa against Wisconsin was essentially Wisconsin the first six games of the year. You know, just couldn't get out of its own way with the turnovers and not forcing turnovers the other way. So, and that's again, there there was a reason one team was six and one, the other team was four and three. If you flip the script, like Wisconsin's done these last two weeks, they'd be in the position that Iowa is in. I don't know about the uh, of those three games. I probably would say I'd probably say Michigan might be the only one that. Mm-hmm. You could sit there and say they wouldn't have, wouldn't definitely have would
1: have beaten Penn State. Absolutely would have beaten Penn State. Yeah,
0: definitely beats Penn State. And you know Notre Dame that obviously got out of control in the fourth quarter, thirty-one. You know with the kick return, the two pick sixes. So I don't. That one might have been a little bit, uh, a little bit closer. But the way Wisconsin is running the ball now, mm, may have taken the taken it out of their hands a little bit more. I don't know. Um, overreaction or no? Wisconsin is the best team in the Big Ten West. Overreaction or no?
1: So I'll admit that I, I really, I haven't seen Minnesota play. I mean, during the season, I'm so wrapped up in covering Wisconsin. And as you know, it takes an entire day when you cover a game. I don't really have a chance to see a lot of other games, but I would bet on Wisconsin, even though that game's going to be at TCF Bank Stadium. I mean, we saw this scenario two years ago, and granted that was a much better Wisconsin team, but it certainly looks like that's going to be the clash. The regular season finale for the right to represent the West in the Big Ten Championship game. Right now, I would I would take Wisconsin because it just seems like they've found something. As I've said before, Wisconsin's got an elite defense, and what other unit in the Big Ten West can say they've got something that incredible? And I think Wisconsin's going to ride that all the way home to Indianapolis.
0: They have the only elite unit left. I mean, in terms yes. of – Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Iowa's defense is solid, but it's not elite. Yes. You know, I I thought it was, it's not so, and and they were down a couple of corners yesterday too. If those guys come back, maybe it is, but yeah, I mean, Wisconsin gets Rutgers, they get Northwestern, they get Nebraska, and then they go to Minneapolis. And the Gophers are, uh, are two losses right now, Ohio state in that opener and to inexplicably to (laughs) Bowling green as a 31 point favorite. So those are their two losses. They haven't necessarily played anybody on the other side of of the division. They don't play Michigan. They don't play Michigan State. They don't play Penn State. So um, this was the the schedule certainly worked out well for them. Uh, And now Wisconsin, beginning of the season, not great, but certainly uh, beating the teams that they have routinely beat in the Big Ten West. And it's the reason why they played so many times in the Big Ten championship game because they've owned the West, and these last two weeks have shown why. We'll see if they can keep it going when they go to Rutgers next week, and or I should say uh, this coming Saturday. Rutgers got it for its first Big Ten win over Illinois. I don't know how good Rutgers is, but there is at least one guy that I'm interested to see how he plays, and that is Aaron Cookshank. I'm sure he's going to be jacked up and ready to go for that game. I asked Danny Davis if he had like reached out to Aaron yet yesterday, and he said he hadn't, but he was going to, and uh, you know maybe talk a, you know some some fun trash to to the former uh, Wisconsin wide receiver. In terms of Minnesota, do we know who, We don't know how good they are, and they, because they've essentially they've played nobody. And you know, Wisconsin, Wisconsin's played a lot of people. They haven't beaten all those people, but they've played a lot of them. We kind of know what Wisconsin is. I don't think a lot of people know exactly exactly what Minnesota is at this point, based on who they've played. So we'll see. The other team that's just in complete free fall uh, is Nebraska. They're always. It feels like they're always right there. And they can't finish it, but Scott Frost. I mean, there's there's no way he makes it out of this season alive, right? <laughs> um, I I, it's I should have hard said, it's it, he's I, gonna I don't know, he, man. he's gonna he's gonna make it a lot. he's gonna make it out alive, but I I don't I can't imagine unless they pull an upset like they beat Wisconsin. I mean, there's they got Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Iowa left to play. I don't see a win there for them. How do you? <laughs> I, they're going to be three and nine. They're not going to make a bowl game. I don't know how in year four, this is year four, I believe, that he can be, that you can hold on to him other than just the money. But yeah, and, and, I, the, and the AD didn't hire him, even though, you know, he's, he's another Nebraska guy, Trev Alberts, he, he didn't hire him. So it's not like something that he has to uh, hold on to him. And like, they're not connected by any stretch. In
1: the world of college football, I think four years is about the the longest of leashes you get if you're not successful, he's 15 and 26 during his time at Nebraska. He's 10 and 22 in the big 10. They're one and five right now. He's never finished higher than tied for fifth in the West and he hasn't had a winning record yet. So, you know, four classes or four years is an opportunity to bring in your own players. And I, the question is always certainly financial considerations is, is a key factor, but if you're going to get rid of someone, you better be sure you're going to bring in somebody who can be better. I don't know what that is for Nebraska right now. Um, (laughs) And if he, it's like, if he can't do it, who kind of wonder who can. Yeah. It's. And again, if you're a Wisconsin fan, it should make you feel a little bit better. There are worse programs out there. Really. Wisconsin was in a weird spot this year in general, because the three losses that they had, obviously the offense and specifically the passing game was not good, but you're losing a top 15 programs. And so I think it's it's like, yeah, Wisconsin's not a top 15 team this year, but they might be a top 20 team, a top 25 team when it's all said and done. Uh, much better than a lot of other programs. And Nebraska is a good example of, <laughs> you know, where things could be.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's get into some Twitter questions. Um, Bucky Badger asks, how do we feel about Mertz now? He played good in the first half, then terrible, then okay again. Do we start to potentially throw it a little more now or just keep it on the ground all the time? The latter seems to be working, but the ceiling is definitely lower.
1: I think what they did against Iowa is very smart. If nothing else, it keeps the team on their heels a little bit because it's not like <laughs> they're going to run it 60 times. I mean, they're obviously going to run more than they pass. How to feel about them, I I don't know. <laughs> Like I keep saying the talent is there, but you need to see it out on the field. And this is basically what he's been for most of the season, 50, 55%. But he didn't turn the ball over. And that's the first time this season that that's been the case. So if that's the improvement that he makes, I think that he can, then I think it becomes a little, a little bit different in terms of what, what's possible for him in this offense.
0: Uh, kind of stick on this topic. Uh, was to hands of steel ass was today close to the ceiling for Mertz in 2021? And if it is, can you live with it? And does it allow a fair shot in remaining regular season games? Man,
1: that's a tough question uh, because he started out so well and the second half was just kind of more the same. Is it the ceiling? Well, The ceiling is, I go back to the last answer, not turning the ball over, (laughs) which makes a huge difference. So if he can do that, I still think there's a higher ceiling for Graham. I'm not going to sit here and say 11 for 22 for 104 yards is his ceiling. Um, But I, I don't know what the ceiling
0: is. C.T. Badger asks, is it my imagination or is Mertz beginning to use his progressions better instead of locking onto one target? Still a bit inconsistent, but at least it seems like positive progress. I, I, think, I think where that's coming from, one specific throw to Danny Davis where he looked off the safety and pulled, him to the, pulled the safety to the left and, and came back and hit Davis for a first down. Maybe it was DK for a first down, but I think that one was, was showed a couple times on, on replay. That would be the one where I would not, have noticed it. hmm but I kind of feel like Danny was his, his number one a bunch. And so that's kind of why he, st- why he uh, stayed with him.
1: Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, when, they, especially early. They were getting out so quick that I, it seemed to me he was just like the plan was get the ball to Danny early. Uh, I don't know. Um, you're in better position to answer that question, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, without going back and watching every throw and, and kind of seeing where he was at, that one just stood out to me when I was watching an uh, abbreviated uh, section of highlights on YouTube at 3 o'clock this morning. Um, Whiskey Lover says, how do you keep Mertz in rhythm? It goes from good to not good. Streaky, it seems. How do you, how do, you do that?
1: You just keep throwing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I right? Think the play, like some of the play action was, was good in the first half good in the first quarter because Iowa was just so keyed in on the run and I, there were some wide open guys I, i'll i think there was one great pass to danny on the sideline on the touchdown drive where he uh lofted it over the corner and danny made a great play on it great catch on it but those was the type of plays i think like they need to give danny more of an opportunity to make because that's the type of player he is like going up making plays on 50 50 balls that's what he i think he excels at so but yeah i mean it's 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 difficult especially when you're running the way you are. Yeah.
1: Overall, I would say this has got to be the strategy moving forward. As you look in 22 of his throws, 16 of them, he targeted Davis and Ferguson. Those are your two best playmakers through the air, at least at this point. And those are the guys that Mertz trusts. And I mean, yeah, I suppose if you're a defense, you say, well, let's just, you know, bracket so-and-so and try to take him away, but that's where the run game comes in and, and they, they need to complement each other. So, I don't know. I, I just feel like you need to target those two guys more. And we finally saw it against Iowa.
0: In the second half, uh, Tom says uh, on TV replay from a pie, it didn't look like people were open and that Graham had nowhere to throw. Am I wrong? If, if right is the wide receiver talent or scheme, I did think guys were covered up pretty good, uh, especially after the first quarter. But I mean, some of the throws that he made just weren't great decisions, I think. And um Yes, I th- there, were, there were some not great decisions. All right, uh, Michael says, can we agree, and we've kind of talked about this, but can we agree that the only team that has beaten UW this year is UW? Turnovers, lack of takeaways, penalties, responsible for all three losses.
1: Uh, many of the problems have been self-inflicted. I the, the other teams were pretty good, too. I mean, but yes, you turn the ball over 16 times in the first Seven games. Um, it's very unWisconsin like. So, a lot of it's been their own problems.
0: Yeah, everyone's favorite kicker Vitaly Fisetsky says, "How does Wisconsin match up against Michigan State? Because I already know how it matches up against Ohio <laughs> State." Dot dot dot. I will say this: I would love to see that matchup, that running game against Wisconsin and, and Kenneth Walker the third running against this Badger defense, the top rushing defense in the country. I would love to see it. Uh, I think that, I, I think if you're Wisconsin, you'd like that much matchup a lot more than seeing Ohio State again um, in that championship game. But just because, you know, strength on, not necessarily strength on strength, but it, it kind of is when it comes to that. I, I, I'll be honest, I have not watched Michigan State a ton, but I would love to see that, that running game and what Kenneth Walker has done against uh, this defense and the way that they've stopped the run against everybody they faced.
1: Uh- to see that matchup too, I'm almost uh, as uh, as interesting as it is to watch Wisconsin play Ohio State for so the and cont- against the creme de la creme in the Big Ten over the last decade. I feel like we've sort of seen that story before, and it just seems like Wisconsin would be better equipped for a Michigan State type matchup because we've seen Ohio State. They've got as simplistic as it is, all the four and five star talent that just wins out over the course of sixty minutes. Michigan State isn't quite built that way. Now, this year is a little bit different, obviously, in the, the makeup of the roster because Mel Tucker has gone um, with transfers. But in general, I think that it's a it's a more favorable matchup for Wisconsin. I have no idea what would happen in that game, but it would be a lot of fun to see it play out. And it would be even more fun if Michigan State managed to stay undefeated.
0: I mean, yeah, that'd be an absolutely huge game for them because it'd be playoffs. I mean, that essentially, playoff would be on the line for them if that were to be the case. Slacknick says, uh, I think we can win out now for me, winning the big 10 West still matters and makes me proud as a UW alum. I know some people will say making the playoff is all that matters, but am I wrong for being proud of nine and three and winning the big 10 West? Is that dumb?
1: No, not at all. Um, And it's all about expectations. I think if, at the start of this season, if you would have said nine and three and win the West, I think there would have been the the overwhelming majority of people would have said that that would have been disappointing because they are supposed to win the West. They're the preseason Big Ten West favorite by a huge margin, and nine and three would mean well they never really gave themselves a shot at the playoff because that's the thing that Wisconsin hasn't been able to the, the hump that Wisconsin hasn't been able to get over. Having said that. If you're in a spot where you know that this team started 1-3 and and the offense seems like it's going nowhere, 8-0 is incredible. <laughs> so I think it's a matter of perspective. But in general, no, I think winning the West is still a big deal. And, and playing in the Big Ten Championship on that huge stage and just having an opportunity to win a conference title, it's still a big deal. If your only measure of success is whether you get into the playoff. Well, you're going to have 126 FBS teams every year that are just have miserable fan bases. And I just I don't think that's the way to go about it. Eventually, if there's a playoff expansion, we'll have a different conversation. But in general right now, I just don't think you can weigh what's successful on whether you make the playoff.
0: Mark says uh, Malusi is a nice player, but can we stop pretending that he's the Badgers best running back? Allen should be getting more carries.
1: I think that's reasonable. Um, I think it's reasonable. Braylon's got four straight hundred yard games and he's only had a significant role in those four games. So, but I think it's sort of trending in that direction. As we mentioned, Braylon carried 20 times Ches 19 at worst. It's a split rep scenario right now, but I think the more Braylon performs like that, the more opportunities he's going to get. Gary Brown has said all along that he wants to ride the hot hand and Braylon's hot, but I think Chez obviously is still a vital part of this offense, and it's going to continue to be. I don't know what it'll look like next year. I think that's the more interesting conversation. You have an entire offseason where Braylon's playing running back. He's got a season under his belt at the position. What do things look like then? How much better can he be? But right now, I think this is what we're going to see more of.
0: Jorgie says, which defense would you rather have, 2021 or 2017?
1: Ooh, man. I, I feel like I would need to pull up the 2017 roster to compare and contrast, uh, <laughs> but you, you had TJ Edwards and Ryan Connolly at inside backer. Um, I think I would take this inside backer tandem um, of Jack Sanborn and, and Leo Schnell. Yep. No disrespect to 2017. Those guys were great. Obviously. Um, I, I, I need to go and look at yeah,
0: 2017 had Leon Jacobs and Dan yeah. Ginkle back there. Uh, I, I should say an outside linebacker. Again, I, I know the corners have played really well this year, but I still kind of think I like Nick Nelson and Derek Tindall better. Okay. The defensive line, you know, with Chikwe, Olive, Songopolu, That was a good group. Alec James, Connor Sheehy. Like, all those guys were, were good players. Um, I don't know. That's, that's, a, it's, it's, that's a tough question. I think that they I think that this group is playing at a higher level right now than than that group is but you think about what they did to Iowa that year. <laughs> Iowa had 66 yards? Yes. The third I mean it's the the least that they've ever allowed in a conference game. So yeah, I mean that's a really tough decision. I I guess I would kind of side with this <sighs> I guess I'm going to let the rest of the year play out, but I, I'm, I'm. I think a big, that's reasonable. I'm a big. I'm a big fan of this defense, and I think at the beginning of the year I thought it could be better, and it's certainly right on that same level. So, finished with this. Any update on Clay Cunt?
1: Yes, uh, Wisconsin sent out an update on Saturday night, um, and the update was that he was transported to UW Hospital for evaluation and treatment after he suffered a right leg injury. And then he was released from the hospital Saturday evening, and the statement said that further treatment for his injury and a timeline on his recovery are to be determined. So that's where we're at right now. I don't know when we'll get more of an update. Obviously, on Mondays, we get a status report, but I can imagine what that's... Clay's... I'm speculating, but he would be surprised if he's playing in the Rutgers game. And uh, that was a a very scary injury. And uh, just glad to hear that He was able to leave the hospital on Saturday night.
0: Yeah, no doubt. It it was, yeah, obviously great news for him for sure. I lied. One more. College football rank, uh, playoff rankings come out. What is that Monday or Tuesday? Uh, I can look it up if you want. It does, it's irrelevant. Do the Badgers crack the top 25? Uh, that's from Rory.
1: Um, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I, they are they are not ranked in either of the top 25 polls. Um, they are receiving votes in both. So, I don't know. I guess I'd be surprised, but hey, does it I mean it's it's obviously irrelevant. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So, but get on the record, Jesse, yes or no? No. Okay. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with yes. Yes, they are. All right.
1: Okay. That'll I like you it. being the contrarian.
0: That'll do it. That'll do it for the show. We'll be back later this week. Get ready. Get you ready for Rutgers coming up on Saturday afternoon out in the glorious, glorious state of New Jersey. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thanks, Zach. All right. There he is. Jesse Temple from The Athletic. You've been listening to The Camp here in the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.